0: Amen. I think we could dismiss right now and say it's been good to be in the house of the Lord. I'd just like to call your attention to the book table that I have in the back. Some things that I think might be a help and an encouragement to you. About 11 years ago, the Lord placed my wife and myself on an amazing journey. She was diagnosed with stage 3 cancer, and it was in the lymph nodes. And if you know anything about uh, the history of cancer, 30 years ago that would have been a death sentence. Put your house in order. You're going to glory. Well, after 26 weeks of chemotherapy, prayer, and fasting, she had her surgery. And after the surgery, we saw the surgeon and he said, I sent your, your, first of all, he said, your body responded well to the chemotherapy. And both my wife and I looked at the nurse who was a believer and we winked at her because you and I know it's not our body responding well. We serve the great King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the great physician who says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. He said, I sent the tissue off to the pathologist, and he called me right away, and he said, what am I supposed to be looking for? There's no cancer here. So all the while, while she was on her journey, she was journaling, and I asked her afterwards if she would put her journal in a book. It's called Every Day is a Gift, and we are blessed that the Lord has just used this immensely. We have a church in Indiana that gets it. They send it off to the patients at the cancer center. We've got an oncologist up in the U.P., Buys these for her patients. She said, When I give a patient a, a, a diagnosis of cancer, she said, I'm handing them a death sentence. I want to give them hope. We were at a church one time and a lady got one of these and she came back that evening and she said, I bought your wife's book. I went home and read it the entire afternoon. She said, I don't even have cancer and it's an encouragement to me. So if you know somebody who's on that journey, stop by and take a look at that. And then how many of you have noticed? that they're tearing down our monuments around the, around the United States. Why are they tearing down the monuments? Well they'll tell us that the people depicted in those monuments were not perfect. And the first thing I would say is, compared to who? Compared to what? And when I think about that, they're tearing down the monuments because those men depicted in those monuments have feet of clay. They were flawed. Can I tell you something? You're looking at somebody who's flawed. I had, I've had a small fortune slip through my fingers in my lifetime. Do you know how many baseball cards I put in my bicycle spokes when I was a kid? <laughs> Do you know what those things would be worth today if I had them? I mean, a Tom Brady card just sold for 4 million dollars. Preacher could live on that if he's careful. So one of the great joys that I have is I give tours of Washington, D.C., and I show the folks the monuments that are there. It's called Our Stories in Stones. It's what you're going to be seeing shortly. And I just wanted to make sure that this was memorialized in a book where we are showing this generation and the next that we have uh, scripture verses, that we have a godly heritage in Washington, D.C., and if we suffer cultural amnesia and we forget how we got here, <coughs> then We are no better than the last verse in the book of Judges which says every man does that which is right in his own eyes. And so stop by and avail yourself of that. Then a couple of years ago I was in a debate with an atheist and one of the things that the atheists like to talk about is the fact that we're a secular nation, nothing good or godly about our country ever, unless you look at the monuments. And uh, my youngest daughter was a stamp collector and I started looking at her stamp collection and I thought, that's amazing. There are so many scriptural references and religious heritage on the stamps. Uh, This was a fun book to get put together. It's called Our Stamp of Approval. And if we're such a secular nation, it's amazing that when Apollo 8 circled the moon, we came up with a stamp that said, In the beginning, God. The first four words of the Bible. Somebody once said, if you can believe the first four words of the Bible, everything else is easy after that. And so this is just a history, a memorial of the things of our religious heritage, our national seals, our colonial seals, just pointing to the fact this is not to convince somebody that we have a godly heritage. This is to prove to them that we have a godly heritage. And that's back there. And then if you were in Sunday school this morning, uh, the PowerPoint presentation was called, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. If you're interested in that, please avail yourself of, of that. I think the most important thing that's back there is our prayer card. Would you please take one of our prayer cards and remember to pray for us? Pray that as we work with our elected officials in our home state and then also in Washington, D.C., that number one, that we would be a testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would remind them that one day all of us will give an account to an almighty, holy, thrice-holy God, and it's imperative for us to live a life of righteousness, to do what's right, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And I would appreciate that if you would remember to pray for that. I've been asked in the past, how did you get started working with Max? Let me just tell you my story before we begin tonight. But I was 14 years old. I was in a ton of trouble. All of my friends were getting caught for the things we were doing. I had not gotten caught yet, but I knew that day was coming. And a fellow that I played baseball with said, would you like to go up to camp with us? And all I could think of was, if I go up to that small camp in northern Wisconsin, two hours from my hometown of St. Paul in Minneapolis, the cops can't find me there. (laughs) So I got on the bus, went up to camp. All day Monday, the things you do at a Bible camp, Bible teaching, Bible preaching. Monday night, the campfire service was on the reality of hell. I remember going to my bunk that night and thinking, boy, I don't want to go to hell. Next day, same thing, Bible teaching, Bible preaching, activities, Tuesday night, bible message at the campfire the reality of hell hell is eternal hell is hot hell was prepared for the devil and his angels and if you reject the free gift of salvation through the lord jesus christ you will experience a Christless eternity I remember thinking boy I don't want to go to hell wednesday the same thing except on wednesday night we went to an independent fundamental baptist church just like this and all the way in from the camp and all the way back i was asking my camp counselor how can i know that i'm saved i was roman catholic I knew the stations of the cross, I knew the the Apostles' Creed, I knew the Lord's Prayer, I knew all of that. And that night, July 10th, 1974, my camp counselor pointed that Jesus Christ died for me personally. It was my sin that put Jesus Christ on the cross. I was responsible for his death. And that night I asked him to save me, to accept me as one of his own. To give me a home in heaven when I died. That fall, I went back to our public school, and I tried as best as possible as a brand-new Christian to try to be a testimony. Some days, I would get bold, and I would carry my Bible with me to class. And my friends would say, Are you a Bible salesman, Tim? Are you a Jesus freak? And after a year's time, with some success of witnessing to my friends, I asked my dad, who was Roman Catholic, if I could go to a Christian school. I said, Dad, I would like to go to a Christian school this fall. And he said, That is great. And then he listed all the Catholic schools in the St. Paul area he would send me to. I said, Dad, you don't understand. I would like to go to Fourth Baptist Christian Day School. And he said, oh, if that's what you want, I can't pay for that. You'll be on your own. And all I heard him say was, yes, you can go to a Christian school. That summer I went out and got a job. Enrolled myself in Fourth. I wanted to be in the type of Christian school that you have right here. Every single month when the bill came, it came with my name on it. From that day in 1975 until today, every single day of my life has been involved in Christian education. Whether it was a Christian high school student, that year I went to 4th, the next year my wife and I graduated from Rosemont Baptist Schools, and then we went down to Bob Jones University, and I must say, you're looking at somebody who's pretty gifted. took me seven years to get a four-year degree from Bob Jones University. (laughs) I finally graduated, magna kumbaya. (laughs) It was so bad, we had one dean from the College of Arts and Sciences who had been a foot soldier in Adolf Hitler's army. He was conscripted when he was 14 years old. And for seven years, he watched me walk around that campus. I had him for an orientation class, had him for a philosophy class, had him for a German class. If anybody's going to speak German, it would have been that guy. And after seven years, graduation day came, and they said, make your way up on the platform. Your dean will give you a folder to hold your diploma in, make your way off the platform, and find your seat. And as I walked up on the platform, and he looked at me after seven years of walking on that campus, he went to hand me my folder. He looked at me, and he said, Well, I never thought I would see the day. And I thought, All right. Way to encourage the (laughs) troops on the way out of here. (laughs) Taught in South Carolina and then South Bend, Indiana, for three years, and then the Lord moved us up to Michigan. And every day since that day that I enrolled in Fourth Baptist Christian Day School, I've either taught in a Christian school, had my children in a Christian school, worked with the Michigan Association of Christian Schools, and today my wife and I are greatly blessed. We're able to help with our grandchildren in a Christian school. I firmly believe in Christian education. This is what I've been called to do. And I feel like what we're doing tonight, just showing some of our godly heritage, and what we did in Sunday school, showing our godly heritage, is part of Christian education for us. So if you have your Bible tonight, will you please turn with me to the book of Joshua? And out of respect to God's word, let's all stand together tonight. The preface of your King James Bible says it is meant to be read in churches. And so in Joshua chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, I'd like us to do something. I'd like us to do a responsive reading. I'm going to read verse 1, and then I would like all of you to read verse 2 aloud. And then I'll read verse 3, and you do verse 4. I'll do all the odd number verses. You do the even number verses. And we'll read verses 1 through 7 responsibly. The sacred historian has recorded these words for us in Joshua chapter 1. And it came to pass, when all the people were clean passed over Jordan, that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men, out of the people, out of every tribe, a man. And command ye them, saying, Take ye hence out of the place of the where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones, and ye shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night. Joshua, Joshua called the men, whom prepared for the children of Israel out of every tribe. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of Jordan, and take ye up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, and then this is our text for this evening, and these stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. Let's pray together tonight. Father, we come to you and we have heard your word in our presence. And there is great responsibility whenever the word of God is spoken or preached. Lord, we are accountable to you for what we've heard tonight. Lord, I ask that our hearts desire would be that we would be more noble than those in Thessalonica and that when we hear the word of God, we would search the scriptures daily, fervently, energetically, whether these things are so. Lord, help us not just to be hearers of the word, but doers as well. Lord, I pray that your holy, sacred word would take root in our hearts tonight and that in turn it would bring forth fruit and that the fruit would remain. Lord, we thank you so much for the blessing of being here Thank you for the blessing of your word. Thank you for the country that you've given to us. Lord, I ask that you would give us revival again. I pray, Father, that you would help us as your children to pray for revival, to be earnestly seeking a nation that would live for you. And Lord, help us to seek a city whose builder and maker is God. Help us with our dual citizenship. Help us to be citizens here, but also help us to have a heavenly heart for a city that we haven't seen yet. And we would thank you for all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This, is a moment, this text is a momentous day in the history of Israel. They're about to cross into the promised land. They've wandered for 40 years. And the moment has come. The sense of anticipation is there. And there's one last set of instruction that they have before they cross into the, into the promised land. The Jordan River is going to dry up all the way back to the city of Adam. And the Bible says that the water is stacked up like a heap. That meant the Jordan River kept flowing, but it flowed and stopped, flowed and stopped, flowed and stopped. And you could just imagine what the people of the city thought when they looked up at that water stacked up. This is-we've never seen this before. And the children of Israel are going to cross the dry bed of the Jordan River. And one of the things that they have to do, they have to take a representative from every single tribe, and he's going to pick up a stone so large that he has to place it on his shoulder to get it over. And when they get it to the other side, they're supposed to build a memorial of stones right there. And they build that memorial of stones so that they have a national monument with a spiritual heritage. So that in future times, when children are traveling with their parents, and you remember what it's like to go on vacation with your kids... A million questions. Are we going to stop? Are we going to stop for lunch? Can we stop? I got to stop. <laughs> you remember those days. And they would say, what are those stones about? What's this here for? And it was a teaching moment for the parents to say, it is a memorial to a wonderful story. Let me tell you a great story. There was a day that the Jordan River was three times its normal flood width. Normal width. Flood stage. And God miraculously stopped the Jordan River and backed it all the way up to the city of Adam. And your spiritual forefathers crossed the Jordan River on the dry ground. Children, that is a national monument with a spiritual heritage. We have a national monument with a spiritual heritage. If we could start the PowerPoint presentation, that would be just great. I was in Washington, D.C., on September 10th, 2001, the day before the world changed forever. And as I went to Washington, D.C., I was in the Capitol building, and I had been thinking about this presentation for about a year, and I wanted to put it together, I wanted to take photographs around the Capitol building, so on September 10th, 2001, I walked into the Capitol building, saw the sergeant of arms, handed him my card. I said, I'm Tim Schmig with the Michigan Association of Christian Schools, and I would like to take some photographs around the Capitol building. And he said, what would you do with them? And I said, well, I want to put together a spiritual heritage tour. And I said, I'd like to show it in Christian schools. I've shown this in public schools, in a high school AP class. I've shown it at different political functions. Just to show the heritage that's here. And he did something that was unusual then, and very unusual today. He took out his business card, he wrote on the back of it, it said, let Tim take pictures, and he signed his name to it. He said, if anybody stops you in the building, just show them that I said you could take photographs here, and you'll be okay. So that day, September 10th, 2001, a number of the photographs that you're going to see, I took on that day. The next day, I was supposed to be in a meeting in the White House, and as we went our, made our way to the White House, We were just about to approach from 16th Street. And as we were walking up towards our entry, all of a sudden all the guards rushed the perimeter. And they said, you can't enter the White House here. You need to move over towards the Eisenhower Executive Office Building. And as we were walking down Pennsylvania Avenue, there was a policeman's motorcycle there. And his microphone was on. It was about 9.45 in the morning. And that was a, a very confusing morning, to say the least. And they said, over the policeman's microphone, that the World Trade Center had been bombed. Nobody knew exactly what happened at that moment. And they said, the Eisenhower Executive Office building is closed. Make your way down 17th Street. So at that point, they had let out all of the federal employees. The streets were clogged. They had scrambled uh, the fighter aircraft, and they were zooming low over Washington, D.C. Every time that they passed, you could just feel the ground shake and rumble. And as we made our way down 17th Street, we got to Constitution Avenue, and we looked over at the Pentagon building, And there was a yellow, gray, acrid smoke coming out of that. That the world has changed forever. And then we made our way up to Constitution Avenue. And Pastor had talked about the phone lines going down and our phones were dead. You couldn't make any cell phone calls. And that night when I finally was able to call home, my daughter, who was a senior in high school, said, Dad, I just wanted to hear your voice once again. God has blessed us in such an amazing way. And yet I think it would be safe to say that it's important for us to remember the heritage that we've been given. To remember that compared to every country in the world, we have been blessed providentially greater than any country in the world, bar none, no debate, end of discussion, show me one country, one country that is a country of destination where people are trying to get into our country instead of trying to escape our country. The Bible says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Only two nations in the history of the world have claimed that verse for themselves, Old Testament Israel and the United States. (laughs) A couple of years ago, the atheists sued to remove the Declaration of Independence from view. When I debated the atheists, one of the things that I learned is I went to all of their websites, I metaphorically enrolled in Atheist University, I went to all of their podcasts, and I just listened, how do they form a debate? And I watched some of their debates on different things, and one of the things that I learned from listening to the atheists is if you make a mistake, if you happen to say July 3, 1776... Then all of a sudden they throw their hands up and, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Everything said after that is irrelevant because you made a verbal mistake. So this is what they say. As long as there remains any reference to God of any kind in a building, especially within that outdated, wrinkled up piece of paper showcased in the Capitol. Pause right there. The Declaration of Independence is not in the Capitol It's in National Archives. So they just made a mistake. Now, in the Capitol building, there's a bronze inscription of the Declaration of Independence, but they said wrinkled-up sheet of paper. There will remain as a monument to ignorance. I can think of somebody who just said something kind of ignorant. Tyranny, oppression of everyday Americans in its current form. Really? The Declaration of Independence is our birth certificate. What do you want to change it to? You can't. You can't go back and say, I don't like that, and change history. History is not there for us to like or not like. History is there for us to learn from and then go forward. In its current form, the Declaration of Independence is by far the biggest threat to our liberties. I can think of some things that are a bigger threat to our liberties, and we're about to dress them tomorrow on Capitol Hill with some of our U.S. senators who think they can redefine marriage you cannot redefine what God has already defined. Male and female created he them. In the image of God made he them. There is no debate. It's black and white. There is no place for it in a truly free and modern society, so they say. Franklin Jameson, curator of National Archives, made this statement. He said, Of all the means of estimating American character, the pursuit of religious history is most complete. Now, if you have the History Channel... You can see programs that talk about the founding of America, World War I, World War II, Civil War, excuse me, the War of Northern Aggression, if you've studied it well. That was sort of a Southern joke. Um. (laughs) And yet, when was the last time you saw a program on National Public Radio, on National Public TV, History Channel, that talked about the Great Awakening, the life of Jonathan Edwards? the revivals that happened in the northern camps and southern camps of the Civil War, the American missionary movement, where since 1900 we have sent more missionaries worldwide than all of the other nations in every century combined. We have been a nation that has obeyed, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Whenever I give a tour of Washington, D.C., one of the places that's always on the tour without exception is Arlington National Cemetery. It just puts the whole trip in perspective. As you leave the visitor center and you're going to walk up the hill and go to the left to the tomb of the soldier known to God, or you're going to go to the right and you can go to John F. Kennedy's grave, you'll pass this sign. And it says, welcome to Arlington National Cemetery, our nation's most sacred shrine. And at the bottom it says, please remember, these are hallowed grounds. Sacred shrines. Hallowed grounds. Those are words you rarely hear any politician ever talk about, and yet Arlington transcends everything. For me, it's just the visual. In every direction where you look, simple white markers bearing crosses or stars of David, this is just a small fraction of the price that's been paid for the freedom that you and I enjoy. For some that are in Arlington, this is what they would have seen. June 6, 1944, LST Higgins boat landing craft landing on the beaches of Normandy to liberate a continent from the tyranny that they were in the grips of. One writer said this freedom is not a natural state, otherwise, more people would be free. Tyranny, oppression, dictatorship, and the denial of human rights are the norm for much of the planet. Mankind's lower nature dictates that far too many seek to reduce others to servitude in order to elevate themselves. Driving by Arlington National Cemetery, I'm reminded of the cost of freedom. Those who sacrificed everything invested in freedom for my family and yours so we can all live our lives where we choose to live them and worship where and however we please. These are freedoms most of the world can only dream about, and we live it every day. General Patton said it's foolish and wrong to mourn the men who died. Rather, we should thank God that such men lived. Oftentimes, if you attend a funeral and the soldier was a believer, the pastor, the chaplain will give this verse, and it says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And this verse is inscribed on some of the headstones that are at Arlington. Every half hour and every hour, there's a changing the guard at the tomb. It's a solemn ceremony. Very reverential. 2002, this young lady that's on the left, one of our students, was allowed to lay the wreath at the tomb. This is the wreath that she played, placed there. Franklin Roosevelt said, he stands in an unbroken line of patriots who have dared to die that freedom might live. Well, it's William Gladstone, Prime Minister of England, made this statement. Show me the manner in which a nation cares for its dead, and I will measure with mathematical exactness the tender mercies of its people, their respect for the laws of the land, their loyalty to high ideals. I'm going to show you what's on the very front of the tomb. Hopefully we can all see this. But inscribed on the front of the tomb, for three generations, any mother that sent her son off to battle and that son did not return could comfort herself in the hope that maybe it's my son who rests in the tomb. Maybe it's my son who's guarded 24 hours a day. And on the front of that tomb, it says, Here rests in honored glory an American soldier known but to God. Folks, that's not the sentiment of a nation trying to come up with comforting words at a very difficult time. That is a nation saying, on a national monument with a spiritual heritage, we know the God who knows the identity of that soldier who's in that tomb. We are acknowledging that as a nation. Psalm 22 says, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. All the kindreds of the nation shall worship before thee. Isaiah says, remember the former things of old. For I am God, there is none else. I'm God, there is none like me. The psalmist says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. The psalmist says, I daydream about our national history because it is a providential history that God has given to us. John Adams, second president of the United States, said, facts are stubborn things. Everything that I'm going to show you when you go to Washington, D.C., I will show you exactly where to look when you're there. The buildings to look at, the monuments to look at, because as a Christian, you and I are called to a higher standard. The truth. Speak the truth in love. We're not afforded the luxury that the leftists have of making it up as they go along. We're constrained by the truth. Whatever may be our wishes or inclinations or the dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts or evidence. So let's go to the Capitol building. This is a photograph that was taken by one of our students and entered in the statewide uh, competition for fine arts in the photography division. Won first place, best in show. And I love how when you look at that, it looks like the clouds are just painted in the background, the flag is unfurled in the foreground. So I did to him what I do to all the kids that do something pretty amazing. I said can I have that? (laughs) It's in my office today. But when you're at the Capitol building, you can stand in the rotunda of the Capitol. How many of you have taken tours of the Capitol building by the official tour guides of the Capitol building? Um, Do you remember when you take the official tour guide of the Capitol that they all wear red sport coats? Does the term red coat mean anything in American history? So if you take your tour at the Red Coats, sometimes they just uh, usher themselves rather quickly by these photographs, and you just want to say, stop, what is this one of? And this is a painting that is of the Embarkment of the Pilgrims. They're in Delft, Holland, and they were separatists. They didn't feel comfortable giving their church service over to the dictates of the Church of England, so they said, we need to leave here. And so they go to Holland, and they realize rather quickly that children adapt to a culture faster than the parents did. Did you ever notice that? And so they notice that their children, very quickly, they said, they've got English bodies, but Dutch minds. They're thinking like the Dutch. So they said, we need to leave here. We want to go to that new world, and we'll go there for religious liberty. So they're on the Speedwell. They're in Delft, Holland, Delft, Holland. And they're going to go to Bristol, England and meet up with the Mayflower. And they're having a prayer meeting on the Speedwell. And they're gathered around. You can see in the painting, there's um, women and children. They're having a prayer meeting. There's a time of devotion as they're asking the Lord to give them safety as they travel. Because realize, in 1620, you and I look back on 1620 and go, yeah, yeah, the pilgrims, first Thanksgiving and everything they're looking ahead and they have no idea what might happen to them as they cross 3,000 miles of the Atlantic Ocean. So I want you to notice there's the lady there and there's a rainbow over her shoulder. The young man on the far left is looking to the west, looking to the future. And the rainbow depicts the promise to Noah that God will not destroy the world as he had done before. He'll protect them. And I want you to notice in the sail over the lady's head, the artist puts something there that I trust you'll be able to see, but in the sale, it says, God with us. Harkening back to the book of Isaiah chapter 8, God is with us. God is with us in our undertaking. He's undertaken to protect us on this journey. God is with us. And then if you take your tour, a lot of times, the tour guides are in a hurry. They say, Well, we've got a big story to tell, and we've got a short time to tell it. And so they don't always get to everything, but you just want to say, So, what is that book that they're holding there? And they'd like to say, Well, it's the Detroit phone book, Sunday edition of the New York Times. But then they will grudgingly and of necessity say it's a Bible. And you want to say, Is it just a Bible? Let's go back. If it transitioned, you could see it says, this is the New Testament of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't you love it when a group of atheists cross the Atlantic Ocean with the New Testament of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? The contrast between South America and North America is South America was settled by the Spanish who went there in search of gold. North America was settled by the pilgrims who went there in search of God. Another one of the paintings is called The Presentation of the Declaration of Independence. Now we know if you go to Independence Hall in Philadelphia, it doesn't look exactly like this as far as the building. But the historian David McCullough said, what's important about this painting is their faces are accurate. They're accountable to us for what they did. And I want you to take a look at a number of things that are in this that I think are interesting. This is the drafting committee on the far left. You've got John Adams then Roger Sherman from Connecticut. And then Robert Livingston, way in the back. Livingston is a sad story. He's, he's on the drafting committee. He's there. He brings a copy of the Declaration of Independence back to the delegates to New York, the Assembly in New York. And he says, here's the, what we worked on in Philadelphia. Are we going to sign this? And the, the Assembly read it, and they said, well, we've got good news and bad news for you. The good news is, yes, we are going to sign it. The bad news is, you're not going to sign it. They sent his cousin back in his place, and he he does all of this work, and his name isn't on the document. Then you've got Thomas Jefferson, the Declaration of Independence flames with his eloquence. And then next to Thomas Jefferson, you've got Ben Franklin, the elder statesman there. And during the writing, if you've ever worked on a committee... Sometimes there can be tensions and Thomas Jefferson gives the Declaration of Independence and it's his work and the drafting committee looks at it and John Adams says, you know, I don't like the way you said this. Let's change it to this. And sometimes he made changes without Jefferson knowing it. Like Jefferson would say unalienable and and Adams would say, I like the word inalienable Jefferson says, what's the difference? And he said, well, I just like this one better. And when, he, when Adams takes it to the printer, he says, oh, by the way, change that word to the one I want. And it was just a frustration for, for Jefferson. And the painter memorialized that because if you look very closely, Thomas Jefferson is stepping on John Adams' foot. As if to say, keep your opinions to yourself. Congress as a whole, it's an individual study that is just amazing when you look at the 56 men who signed it. But I want to point out one of them. Right in the very center is Benjamin Rush, right off John Adams' elbow. Benjamin Rush is one of the youngest signers of the Declaration of Independence. Later he goes on to be Surgeon General of the Continental Army. He's a member of the American Bible Society and Philadelphia Tract Society. The Philadelphia Sunday School Movement, we have Sunday school before church today because of the work of men like Benjamin Rush and others. Benjamin Rush, his signature is right next to John Hancock. Look to the right under Robert Morris's signature. Benjamin Rush is there. Benjamin Rush has a tract that's published in 1830, and the tract is called The Defense of the Use of the Bible in Schools. Here's a signer of the Declaration of Independence who thinks the primary textbook in American classrooms should be the Bible. Look what he says. Before I state my arguments, I shall assume the five following propositions. Number one, Christianity is the only true and perfect religion. Come on, don't sugarcoat it. What are you trying to say? Well, what he's trying to say is Christianity is the only true and perfect religion. That a better knowledge of this religion is to be acquired by the reading of the Bible than in any other way. That the Bible contains more knowledge necessary to man in his present state than any other book in the world. That knowledge is most durable and religious instruction most useful when imparted in early life. And lastly, that the Bible, when not read in schools, is seldom read in any subsequent period of life. When you're in the Capitol building, your congressman or senator can take you to the Congressional Prayer Room. In the Congressional Prayer Room, you will see the stained glass window depicting George Washington, General Washington, probably at Valley Forge. Praying, and if you look closely at the very top, it says, this nation under God. And then in red, circling President General Washington, it says, preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust, Psalm 16.1. This is the House of Representatives. When the Speaker of the House stands at the rostrum, he stands right there. When the President gives a State of the Union address, he stands right there. Can I show you, What our national theologians at ABC, CBS, NBC, MSNBC, CNN and others won't show you. If while the president is speaking, if they would just expand the screen just a little bit, you would see this. In God we trust. Why do you think they don't show that? Maybe it doesn't fit the template that we're just a secular nation. Maybe it belies the fact that those who tell us we're a secular nation, that the leftist religion that they have today is unwilling, unable to acknowledge the slightest hint, scintilla of Christianity. And yet, in God we trust our national mottos right over the speaker. Every single state can give two statues for the beautification of the architectural. Uh, look of the Capitol building. This is a statue of Pastor Peter Muhlenberg. Pastor Muhlenberg was a pacifist. He never thought it was right to raise a sword or lift a musket against the crown of England. Until he saw what the British troops, the lobster backs, did to his brother Frederick Muhlenberg's church in New York City. They desecrated it. And so on January 21st, 1776, Pastor Muhlenberg got up in his church in Woodstock, Virginia, and he said, please open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 3, that famous passage that says to everything there's a season and a time, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which has been planted, a time to re- embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time for war and a time for peace. After he read that passage, he asked the entire church, please close your eyes and bow your heads. And they thought, this is strange. Normally, a pastor preaches a message before he gives an invitation. And as they bowed their heads, as they closed their eyes, Pastor Muhlenberg took off the black ministerial robe that all of the pastors wore in that day, and under his robe was the uniform of the Virginia militia. That's what's happening in this statue right here. He's taking off his black robe. You can see the sword in his left side, the applets on his shoulder. He's got his uniform there. And as he marched to the back of the church, declaring to all, if you do not choose to be involved... If you do not fight to protect your liberties, there will soon be no liberties to protect. Taking tours of the Capitol building. and When we come to this statue, sometimes it's a tour with a staffer. Sometimes it's with the Redcoats. You say, tell me about this statue. And sometimes they know and sometimes they don't. And if they don't, I ask, can I just tell you what's going on in this, in this statue right here? And so I will tell them the same story that I just told you. And it's amazing to watch their expression. You start telling the stories of a pastor in Woodstock, Virginia, and they're smiling. Then he reads Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and they're kind of like this. Then you say he asks everybody to bow their heads, and then he resigns his church, and he's marching marching to the back of the church. And there's his uniform for the Virginia militia. By the time you're through telling the story, they're like this. And you know what their body language is saying? They're saying that story cannot possibly be true. Because if it were true, somebody would have told us, right? You don't keep a story that good from people unless it doesn't fit the modern-day leftist template that we're a secular, ungodly nation. Thomas Jefferson said, A morsel of of genuine history is a thing so rare as to be always valuable. So we're going to leave the Capitol building. We'll walk across the East Lawn of the Capitol building. We'll walk across 1st Street. And this is the Temple of Molech. I mean, the Supreme Court building. <laughs> <clears throat> and I want you to look at the apex of the roof that's right there. The pediment in the roof. This is the west side of the Supreme Court. We're going to walk down 1st Street, walk down Capitol Street. We'll go to 2nd Ca- to Street in the back. And I want, you to show, I want to show you the east side of the pediment of the roof at the Supreme Court building. And there's a statue of Moses holding two tablets representing the Ten Commandments. Now, when I was originally doing this presentation, I'm standing on Second Street looking up at Moses, and I just didn't like the justification of it. So I thought, if I could only go into that house right there, go up on the second floor, I would be almost looking right at Moses. And as you can tell, I'm kind of shy and reserved and pretty timid. And so I went and knocked on the door. The lady came out. She was just going for a jog with her trainer. And I said, ma'am, can I ask a favor? I'm Tim Schmeg. I do a story called Stories and Stones. Would it be possible if I went up to the second story of your house, opened up the window, and was able to take a picture of Moses right there on the top of the Supreme Court building? And she said, that's who that guy is. <laughs> I've lived here for 20 years and didn't know who he was. And I thought, it's not just us. The Bible talks about people that are willingly ignorant of their history. The Bible says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So in the main chamber of the Supreme Court, there's a great stone relief of great lawgivers from the past. On the left, that's Hammurabi. On the right, you've got Moses holding the second tablet of the Ten Commandments, man's responsibility to man. Then as you walk into the main chamber of the Supreme Court. There's a massive, two massive oak doors. There's an oak panel there. And years ago, I took the people from Prairie to Washington, D.C., where Pastor John was. I was there with Pastor and Mrs. Harrison. And I had to leave the next day because I was going to Maranatha for graduation. And so I said to Pastor Harrison, I said, now when you go into the Supreme Court, you're going to see this tablet, this, this icon right there. Ask the Supreme Court tour guide, what does that ta- what's that icon mean? Now, don't take my word for it. Go to that fount of all knowledge, Google. And just Google the words, Ten Commandments, Icon. Don't trust me, trust Google on that one. And so, Pastor Harrison was taking his tour, and they got up to the Supreme Court chamber, and he said, what does this two tablets, Roman numerals one through five on one side, six through ten on the other side, what does that represent? What does that mean? And the Supreme Court tour guide said, oh, that represents the first ten amendments to the Constitution. Only if we let them. But if we want to speak the truth in love, that's the icon for the Ten Commandments in the Supreme Court. We're going to go to just the South Lawn of the White House. Next to that, there's the Organization of American States. This is a garden area there. And right next to the garden area is a statue of a man in Babylonish clothes. A lion is on the right-hand side looking up at him. And in his right hand... He's holding a scroll and the scroll at the bottom says, this is the prophet Daniel. I've often thought, Daniel, you're still in Babylon today, a place that doesn't understand what you're trying to do, that doesn't want to listen, and yet one day they will pay a price for not listening to you. Here's National Archives. Our written documents are there, the Declaration of Independence off to the left, the Constitution then our Bill of Rights. As you leave the visitor's area, and you're going to walk up one step to look at our national treasures, you will see this brass plate in the floor, two tablets, Roman numerals, one through five on one side, six through ten on the other side. At the Library of Congress, this document is there. This is the original draft of the Declaration of Independence in Thomas Jefferson's handwriting. Now, Jefferson is one of those that he's the patron saint of the secular left. They know next to nothing about Thomas Jefferson. If they know anything about Thomas Jefferson, they know two things. He was writer, author of the Declaration of Independence, and he owned slaves. They know nothing else besides that. So when he's writing the Declaration of Independence, we see what he's thinking. And you come to that second paragraph that says, we hold these truths to be, and Jefferson writes something. He says, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. And he gives this document to the drafting committee. Ben Franklin looks at that document, looks over his glasses at Thomas Jefferson and says, sacred and undeniable, Tom, that smacks of the pulpit. Can we change it to self-evident? Jefferson said, change it to self-evident. Where does Jefferson come up with the idea of sacred and undeniable? Well, if you go to Abermyle County Courthouse in Charlottesville, Virginia, There's a plaque on the side of the courthouse that says, during the time of Thomas Jefferson, that courthouse was the largest indoor room that was not a farm or barn building. And every single Sunday, different church services would be held in there. One day, the Methodists would be in there. Another Sunday, the Presbyterians would be there. One Sunday, the Anglicans would be there. One Sunday, Buck Mountain Baptist Church met there every month. The month, the service that Buck Mountain Baptist Church met there, Thomas Jefferson went to church with them and found out that our rights are sacred and coming from God and undeniable. Later, Jefferson would write a letter to Buck Mountain Baptist Church and say, defend me of these charges against me. Ye knew me best. Today, I think it's the Baptists who know Thomas Jefferson the least. This is the first treaty that we entered into as a nation. it's um, It's the Treaty of Paris, and it just ceases hostilities between the United States and Great Britain. At the bottom, you can see that Ben Franklin has signed his name to it. And Ben Franklin is another one that, without studying him much, the secularists claim him as one of their own. But the treaty starts out that Ben Franklin's going to sign his name to it. says, in the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. The rest of the document just basically says, we won and you lost. But let it be understood, signed by Ben Franklin, we're signing this document in the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. We're looking at the Washington Monument from the Lincoln Memorial. When the Washington Monument was built, states and associations could donate stones for the building of the monument. This is a stone that's inside from the state of Michigan. If you could still take the elevator all the way to the top and then walk down the circular staircase, you would see every stone that I'm about to show you. This stone says, from the Sabbath school children of the Methodist E-Church in the city and districts of Philadelphia, a preach gospel, a free press... And then there's an open book right there, and in the open book, right in the middle, it says, search the scriptures, John chapter 5. Search the scriptures, for in them ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. There's an admonition for you to be a student of the Bible, right in the middle of the Washington Monument. Another one of the stones says, under the auspices of heaven... In the precepts of Washington and Kentucky will be the last to give up the union. Ringing the two soldiers head there. It says united we stand, divided we fall and that is a paraphrase from the Sermon on the Mount. Another one of the stones says the memory of the just is blessed. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 7. When the Washington Monument was completed 555 feet tall they put, they had just discovered a brand new medal and they said this will be the most precious medal ever. Let's cap the Washington Monument with it and so they put in a uh, aluminum capstone on the top of the Washington Monument. And on the east side of the aluminum capstone are the words, which very simply mean, praise be to God. The first rays of sunshine that hit Washington, D.C. every single morning hit that aluminum capstone the east side. Praise be to God for a new day of living in this country. This is the Lincoln Memorial. As you enter it, it says in this temple as in the hearts of the people from the, for whom the, union, the memory of Abraham Lincoln is enshrined forever. And off to the left-hand side in the Lincoln Memorial, you will see his second inaugural address, the most theological statement in American history, replete with references to God, biblical quotes, and prayers given. This is our stories and stones. When President Lincoln and Mrs. Lincoln were in Washington, D.C., they would attend New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. They would sit in the second pew right there. And in the stained glass window above the second pew is this stained glass of what the parishioners, the people in the church would have seen those days when he was in church, the President of the United States with his head bowed in prayer. And I think it's amazing that two of the stained glass windows that we see in Washington, D.C., President Washington and President Lincoln, are both in an attitude of prayer. The humility of the leaders that we've had in this country. This is the White House, here are your missionaries to Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom on the Grand River in Lansing, Gomorrah on the Potomac in Washington, D.C. we have just leaving a meeting that we had in the West Wing during the George Bush administration. In the East Room of the White House, over the fireplace mantel, There is this inscription. It's part of a letter that John Adams is writing to his wife, Abigail Adams. She's back in Braintree, Massachusetts. He's living in what they call the executive mansion while they're building it. If you've ever been in a house under construction, he's got all the sights, sounds, and smells of a house under construction, the fresh plaster, the paint, the carpenter sawing and hammering. And that night he writes a letter to his wife, Abigail, and he says, I pray heaven to bestow the best of blessings upon this house and all that shall hereafter inhabit it. May none but honest and wise men ever rule under this roof. We'll conclude our tour. We're going to go to Union Station. We're going to walk out of Union Station, out of the the main doors to Union Station, where all the cabs and the tours are. And we're going to walk, and we're going to take a look at a reproduction of the Liberty Bell, twice its normal size. And... When this was cast, a Bible verse was put on it. And along the top, it says, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land, unto all the inhabitants thereof." Leviticus chapter 25, verse 15. Then as we turn around and we're looking back at Union Station, and we'll look off to the right-hand side, there's this verse at the very bottom, and it says, The desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. That's from the book of Isaiah. Off to the left-hand side, you see at the very bottom, thou hast put all things under his feet. That's from the book of Psalms. Right in the middle of Union Station is the Bible verse, the truth shall make you free. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this truth, it's because there is no truth in them. Let God be true and every man a liar. Folks, If we don't tell our story, who will? We can't count on the secular left. This is our story to tell. In conclusion, turn with me, if you will, to the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 7, and verse 14, a verse that you all know, a verse that is good for us to commemorate on this evening. 2 Chronicles, chapter 7, and verse 14, we read these words If my people, God's people. That's you. That's us. Talk to one person, he says, Well, that verse is to Old Testament Israel. So, what other verses do you want to parse out? The Psalms. David wrote those. I mean, it may not be written to us, but it's for us. Amen. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So, I think we can gain profit from this. There's a principle here. If my people which are called by my name, not who call themselves Christian, but I am calling you my people. They were called Christians first at Antioch. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves. We live in a world today where there's a tremendous amount of arrogance. Where they think they can shake their fist in the face of God. And get away with it. They can take institutions that God has ordained and change them. And today, God says, I want you to humble yourself before me. And then after we've humbled ourselves, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to pray. To ask God for forgiveness for our presumptuous sins. To ask God to show mercy and grace upon us. To ask God to restore himself once again to the place of prominence that we had as a nation. Where it was not um, shameful to put a Bible verse on a monument, where it was not embarrassing to acknowledge that the God who created us, we have a debt owed to him as a nation to be thankful for what he's done for us. If they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. What do we seek? We seek for things that are lost. Let me ask you something. Any of you ever forget a kid someplace? Right here. We lived in Greenwood, South Carolina. We were exactly eight miles from the church. And my Sunday afternoon tradition, the third ordinance, is I was taking a nap. And as I was taking the nap, my wife shook my shoulder and she said, I'm going into choir now. I've got Sarah with us. Take Rebecca, bring Rebecca into church when you come. Uh-huh. And I fell back to sleep. Woke up, got dressed, got myself ready, got in my truck, drove to church, Just as I was walking in the foyer, choir was getting out, and my wife looked at me and said, where's Rebecca? I sucked all the oxygen out of the foyer. "Ah!" I got in my truck, and I flew home. If there was a stop sign, I didn't see it. If there was a red light, I wouldn't know. I was on a mission. I lost something that was precious to me. When I got home... Rebecca, who was two at the time, had just woken up. She was able to get the inside front door open, but she couldn't get the screen door open. As I flew into the driveway, gravel flying, I've got this picture of a little two-year-old standing in the doorway, just sobbing with her hands up. I go in, pick her up, hold her as tight as I can, and through her sobs, she said, No, Sarah. No, Mommy. She never once said, no, Dad. <laughs> Months later, she'd be sitting on my lap, and I'd be reading to her, loving on her, and she'd look at me, and she'd said, you forgot me at home. <laughs> I know. She says today, no permanent damage, but there's no expiration date on that card of you forgot me at home. <laughs> but as a nation, have we forgotten something? Have we lost something? And the key is found in this verse. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, turn off the noise of this world. Do you realize we have a generation today that in their pocket carries with them a portal to hell? Hell they can destroy their lives with what they hold in their hands and turn from their wicked ways. It's an if-then proposition. Then, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. So here's our challenge tonight. You and I cannot expect Brian Williams, Katie Couric, and the rest of of the chattering class to help this nation. They are providentially incapable of helping this nation. God says it's up to you. It's up to my people, which are called by my name. In just a moment, I'm going to ask us all to pray. I'll ask the piano player to come to the piano. And I'm going to ask you to do something a proud person could never do. I couldn't go forward. What will people think of me? I couldn't kneel at an altar. Pour my heart out to God and ask Him to help our nation, to help the nation for my children and grandchildren? Only a humble person can do that. I'm going to ask all of us to humble ourselves tonight and pray and seek God's face and once again revive this nation. It's the only way it can be done. Let's all stand together tonight. Piano player, if you'd come to the piano. Father, who is worthy of these things? None of us are. And Lord, tonight, as your children, we are begging you, show mercy to our nation. Show mercy to our nation that has just set itself against the Lord and against His anointed, that want to break the bands that you've given to us the bands of marriage, the bands of human sexuality. The bands of the family, they want to destroy it all. They want to destroy life. Lord, please forgive us as a nation. Help us, Lord, as your children, to be prayer warriors, to remember to pray for our country, to remember to pray for those that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and a peaceable life. The altar's open now. I'm not going to prolong it. You know what we need to do. Every single one of us here, calling themselves a Christian, need to come forward. And ask God, beg God, to deliver our nation. Because revival begins in the house of God. Cleansing must begin here first. Lord, we would just ask that you would help us and use us. Lord, may we do business and be serious with you in this time. We would thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the piano player plays, please make your way to the front.